Welcome to What's Not Priced In, a weekly investor podcast by Fattail Investment Research. In a world of confusion and rapid change, experts Kirill Prakopenka and Greg Canavan look behind the headlines to unveil the hidden opportunities within the Australian stock market. Now, let's dive in to today's episode. Disinflation versus deflation. Momentum versus fundamentals. Price versus earnings. Today's episode is all about contrasts. We discuss the divergent economic fortunes of the US and China, momentum trading pulling valuations away from fundamentals, and the stagnant Aussie market. Greg then explains why commodities still offer long-term value, exploring some unloved but enticing mining services stocks. And finally, when the market gets dull, pick up a book. Hello and welcome now to the 12th episode of What's Not Priced In. I'm Kirill Prokopenka and joining me as always is Greg Canavan. Greg, good to see you. Kirill, how you going mate? G'day everyone. Not bad. Well, um, sometimes I'd like to start off with a bit of a quote. You know how, how, how much I like quotes. So today, in a, following the mini tradition, I've got two short ones for you. One is from Stephen Penman. He's a finance slash accounting professor and he's got a good one on valuation, which sort of ties in nicely to valuation episode we did a few weeks ago so do check that out anyway this is what he said valuation is not a game against nature but a game against other investors and one proceeds by first understanding how other investors think as an investor you are not required to establish a valuation but only to accept or reject the valuation of others and uh, this is the final one and this one is uh, actually from a famous horse racing punter Stephen Christ so that's a bit of a uh, the curveball then he said um, the issue is not which horse in the race is the most likely winner but which horse or horses are offering odds that exceed the actual chances of victory the only path to consistent profit is to exploit the discrepancy between the true likelihood of an outcome and the odds being offered and i think that sort of uh, ties nicely the whole ethos and philosophy of this podcast of what's not priced in so there, there you have it yeah my, uh, I got a, couple, I got a good mate who is a, uh, uh, a, a punter. He loves a, a Saturday punt, and we were talking the other week, and I actually said to him, "It's not a lot different to, uh, to the stock market. Mm. You're just assessing odds, basically, and probabilities." And you know, we talked about that uh, in that valuation episode. It's all about putting probabilities on your side. And the first quote, uh, we actually haven't discussed in detail what we're going to be talking about today, but mm. uh, that first quote will play into uh, something that I do want to discuss, you know, just about markets in general yep. in a little bit as we get into the convo. So there you go. Well done. Yeah, that's nice. That's good. Well, I think we'll uh, obviously some of the biggest news this week, uh, some pretty disappointing uh, economic data out of China and obviously uh, the upcoming US CPI data, which will be released tomorrow. We're recording this late Thursday. Uh, so I think we'll just maybe start off the discussion there with China and the U.S. And I think they're they're facing quite disparate outcomes. I think the U.S. central bank is sort of struggling to keep that's a sort of tame inflation, so they're achieving disinflation. Whereas I think China now has a bigger problem, which is deflation, actually falling aggregate prices. So why don't we uh, maybe start off there? Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess the the the, the data um, that has come out this week. Uh, shows that the Chinese economy uh, is slowing and is in a bit of trouble. Not necessarily drastic trouble, but whenever China slows down like this, you get more calls for mm-hmm. where's the stimulus. Uh, the central, you know, the authorities have got to do something. Uh, but 
we've spoken about this before, and I think if they were going to do something, they would have done it by now. And what, what they're very mindful of is creating a, a stimulus package that effectively stimulates all the wrong areas, mm-hmm. uh, which is what they're trying to wean their economy off. Um, it would actually be useful, I, I think, for us to find someone who's really in-depth watcher mm-hmm. of the Chinese economy because it is very complex. Uh, I look at it from a very high-level perspective of past stimulus has created fixed mm-hmm. asset um, uh, investment boom, which has obviously been good for iron ore uh, and, and Aussie commodities. Um, but that is certainly the model, of the growth model that the uh, government's trying to get away from because mm-hmm. it's an unsustainable model. It creates all, so- all sorts of distortions. But in saying that, it's it's not easy to get yourself out of that. So uh, I think targeted stimulus me- uh, measures will will come, but they're not mm-hmm. going to be this big credit-induced boom that will just lead to more overinvestment in, in property and fixed asset type things. But if we just have a quick look at some of the uh, some of the data that came out mm-hmm. uh, this this week, I think for me the really interesting stuff was the uh, import export data. Yeah. Um, and if we look at it here, uh, if you can see that on your screen, Kirill, mm-hmm. yep. uh, we've got uh, exports year on year in July were down fourteen and a half percent. Imports into China were down twelve point four percent year on year in July. Mm-hmm. And so that's just one month. And sometimes monthly data can be a yep. little bit skewed. So if you look at year-to-date exports, they're down 5% and year-to-date. So for the first seven months mm-hmm. of the year, imports are down 7.6%. Uh, and turning to the biggest markets for China, the US exports to the US are down quite a large 18.6% yep. year-to-date and exports to the EU down 12.1% year-to-date. And I thought, you know, Interesting from the Aussie perspective, uh, imports from Australia, so obviously mostly commodities, uh, up 9.5% mm-hmm. year to date. So still still looking reasonably good there um, from an Aussie perspective. But more broadly, those numbers really suggest that the global economy mm-hmm. is slowing uh, just in terms of the trade, uh, trade aspects. Um, and then if we look at the China CPI, which is consumer price index versus the producer price index, uh, just dipped into negative territory here mm-hmm. and obviously quite uh, running at a very year-on-year negative rate at 4.4% for the producer price index. You could argue that the, this is probably bottomed. Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I wouldn't suggest that China's going into any sort of drastic deflationary period, but mm-hmm. what it is suggesting is that uh, growth is weak in China uh, and the global economy is certainly not helping China. So mm-hmm. obviously China is the manufacturer to the world, uh, weakening uh, demand in the US and Europe uh, is having an impact on its manufacturing sector. Uh, and I think the, the offsetting growth in the services sector in those economies isn't of much of a benefit to mm-hmm. China. So um, I think that is... I guess an interesting perspective from when you think about uh, asset markets, when you think about stock markets, mm-hmm. the global economy is slowing and is not in in a in a in a particularly healthy state. And if we think yeah. about all the interest rate rises that have gone on over the past twelve to eighteen months, 
And as we constantly talk about on this podcast, the lagged effect of those interest rate rises will still uh, play out for the remainder of this year. And I think we'll continue to see the evidence of, of, of a slowdown. Um, you mentioned before the US CPI. Mm-hmm. Um, now that is due to come out overnight. So by the time uh, people are listening to this, that number will have been out. The expectation is that the uh, US inflation rate will pick up a little bit uh, this year. I mean, sorry, next uh, mm-hmm. the next result, purely because of the base effects from last year. Um, yeah. But if we look at some of these other numbers here, and I this popped up on my uh, Twitter slash X feed last night. So off the recent lows, uh, here is here are all the uh, various commodities that have rallied mm-hmm. s- since the start of the year. So not that this necessarily feeds into inflation directly, yeah. uh, but it is something that you look at and think, well, you know, there's there's still a fair bit of inflationary uh, impact around in the commodity commodity world Mm -hmm. and if we have a look at the uh, break-even inflation rate which is uh, the the financial market's way of predicting or guessing what the inflation average inflation rate is going to be over the next in this case five years so the Mm five-year break-even inflation rate is sitting at 2.23 percent whereas on the first of june it hit a low of 2.07 percent uh, which was which was back back here, um, so it's been uh, increasing over the past few months, which I think has a bit to do with the change in uh, commodity prices and especially mm-hmm. energy prices. Um, I'll show you a chart of oil uh, in a moment, but even on the ten-year uh, inflation front, it hit a low of two point one percent back in March, and this was when the um, Silicon Valley Bank. Mm-hmm. And those banking issues uh, happened in the US, but since then it's been creeping higher. And really, in the past probably few weeks, it's jumped up again. So the ten-year inflation break-even rate is rising. So there's a, mm-hmm. I guess, a bit of concern that even though things are slowing, you're getting uh, structural inflation coming coming back into the economy. Now, what I would say, if the US inflation rate prizes on the upside Mm -hmm. overnight that threatens to lead to a lot of selling in the u.s Mm -hmm. in the u.s bond markets uh which i think will then lead to a lot of selling in the equity market as well so if you think that the rally in u.s stocks has been all about slowing inflation over the past six Mm -hmm. to eight months and that's pretty much what it is the inflation peaked in september and that's when the market bottomed Uh, and ever since then the market has been rallying on the on the basis of inflation yep. uh, has been slowing and, and isn't so much of a problem. Uh, if the market starts to question that narrative, then I think you're going to see bonds and equities sell off, which would be a pretty nasty combination. If it comes if it comes in around expectations or even a little bit lower, uh, you know, I don't think you're going to see much in the way of fireworks, but that's certainly something to just to consider. Uh, I'll just quickly move on to the uh, oil price just to show you how it's picked up there. We, we did uh, zoom in on this last week. Mm-hmm. So really from late June when the – this is Brent crude. So this is the international oil benchmark. Uh, Brent was uh, you know around the $70 mark. 
And then recently it's popped up to, uh, what is it, $87. So it's had a really big rally in the last couple of weeks. And that has been the driving force behind this move up in the, this is the Thomson Reuters uh, CRB commodity mm-hmm. index. So there's a very broad commodity index where energy has the highest weighting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we've seen it sort of bottom here and we're moving out of that long corrective period. And that I think is concerning for inflation, concerning for the bond market, and certainly concerning for the equity market, given where um, you know the, the issues we've spoken about in in recent episodes around valuation and um, and things like that. So uh, I will stop sharing my screen. I've got a few. <laughs> I've got a, maybe a few a few questions. I think uh, maybe with the with China, I think maybe a question that somebody might have is you know clearly. China's struggles to jumpstart its economy have been well well known and obviously well documented. It's plastered all over the major financial press. And so maybe the question is, are China's struggles therefore well and truly priced in, do you think, in your view? And are they maybe already reflected in the prices of commodities like iron ore and copper? Uh, quite possibly. Um let me just show you the because what we've done this uh previously where we've looked at uh, copper versus the mm-hmm. um, the Chinese yuan. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if you can see that on your screen just yet. Uh, not yet. All right, let me have a look. All right, how about now? Yep. So uh, the Chinese yuan to US dollar exchange rate is in the black here. Uh, and the iron ore price uh, is in green. So it's a pretty good relationship over time mm-hmm. between the yuan uh, and, and iron ore price. And there is still a bit of a gap there. Iron ore has obviously sold off in the last couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there is probably still some some downside risk. This is the area where the market started to think, okay, we're probably going to get some stimulus soon. And mm-hmm. I think the iron ore price tried to anticipate that. So if that stimulus doesn't come through, then that isn't priced in. And I think that there is still some more downside there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in answer to your question, um, it, it probably depends on which sector uh, mm-hmm. and, and where. But more broadly, I don't think markets, uh, and, and you know perhaps we can just, chat about markets in general. I don't think markets are really focusing too much on economic growth. Uh, Mm -hmm. If we think about, and this goes back to your, um, this goes back to your point or the first quote that you made. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'll just show a chart of the ASX 200 while we have this chat, because really this is a market what are we 10th of uh august today we're sorry um recording this on the 10th of august today the market peaked on the 13th of august two years ago Mm -hmm. so we have pretty much gone down up sideways nowhere in in two years uh and certainly this year we've um, hit a peak uh, early february and we've um, made lows in march and we've just sort of gone sideways and not done a lot and i think for investors, sometimes you can get very impatient with this type mm-hmm. of market and you can think, well, I must be missing something. I may as well just 
you know, jump on board and get involved because the market's not coming down to where I think it would be or, or, mm-hmm. or whatever. So the important thing to understand is that not everyone's a value investor or not everyone invests in the same way that you do. And certainly in today's modern markets, most buying decisions are driven by machines and, and mm. algorithms. And, you know, we've talked previously about the uh, the, the money behind the tech stocks yep. in the US and everyone, I listen to, you know, investor podcasts and everyone's talking about if you're not exposed to these seven big stocks, then you're, uh, you know, you're missing this huge move and mm-hmm. you're underperforming the market. And what happens in a lot of situations is that once stocks start to trend, these trend-following momentum leveraged funds will just jump on that trend. They mm-hmm. don't care about valuation. They don't care about anything else apart from whether that trend is mm-hmm. is still running or not. And that can that's why markets build up such a head of steam. That's why prices go well beyond what you think they can do purely because everyone just jumps on board. And, and especially, I think, in, in this market uh, that is still driven by machines and different mm-hmm. uh, leverage trading strategies, that just means that you have to be patient and you have to wait for the valuation to come f- to come to you in terms of you know what stock are you looking at, what do you think a fair value is, and uh, what price should you pay for it. So I'm not necessarily saying you have to wait for the ASX 200 to fall back to these lows mm-hmm. or fall even you know further down here to last year's lows. That could happen. I, I don't know. Um, I'm just saying that you need to consider that sometimes in the market, people are investing with completely different uh, principles than, than mm-hmm. what you are. And just because those prices don't uh, suit you, um, it doesn't mean you have to just throw in the towel and say, well, I better, I better jump on board in case I miss the, uh, miss the train. It just, you've just got to be patient. And I think if you look at the tech stocks, and we spoke about this last week, uh, I think we maybe had this conversation when Apple was just here before mm-hmm. it broke lower. Mm-hmm. We pointed out that momentum was faltering. Uh, we showed, I won't show it today, but we showed the RSI mm-hmm. uh, index and how it had diverged from price. And we said yep. that was a warning sign. So that sharp fall suggests to me that a lot of the momentum traders are starting to get out. Now, mm-hmm. it's still holding around support. Uh, this is the 100-day moving average. Uh, so it sliced through the 50-day. Now it's sitting on the 100-day. Maybe we get a bounce from here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to me, this is a big concern in that there is so much money in this stock that doesn't care about valuation. It cares about momentum. Um and if we look at Microsoft, it's a similar it's a similar story. You've got breaking above the old highs. It's rejected those highs again. We showed divergence between price and RSI last week, and mm-hmm. now it's starting to to falter again as the momentum traders get out of there. So it hasn't come back down to this support level as as Apple has, but it certainly you know looks to be on the way. And I'm not saying it has to happen in the next three days, but might get a bounce and a, but to me this, uh, the peak momentum is over for a lot of these stocks. Same mm-hmm. with Nvidia. Yeah. Big divergence here uh, between price and momentum, and that's starting to sell off. Um, again, it's stretched a long way from the moving averages, so it's got a long way to come back to to support. Uh, but it's another sign 
the momentum traders are starting to get a little bit concerned. And then if we look at the FANG index, which is the 10, I guess, most popular yeah. uh, tech stocks, that's popped up here. It's rejected those highs and it's starting to sell off as well. Um, so, yeah, I think it's just important when you're looking at uh, the market in general uh, just to sort of think about, you know, who's doing the buying, what are they mm -hmm. doing the buying for, uh, and is that an area that I need to be involved in? And when everyone, we talk about this all the time, when everyone's talking about something and when it's in the news and in the headlines, it's generally in the price. And that has been the case for some time for the tech stocks. And to me, that move, which we talked about last week, but the move we've yep. seen over the past few days suggests that the momentum trade is ending there. Uh, and I think if that if that is the case, if we're right on that, uh, I think you're going to see some much more selling to come. And that could be, the catalyst could be a worse mm -hmm. than expected inflation number yep. overnight. Um, or it doesn't, you know, it might be next month's inflation number. I mean, the, the issue that the US and I think all developed economies have, and I'll, I've been in the camp that inflation is going to come, come down, mm -hmm. but over the past whatever few months, the more I've looked into the Inflation Reduction Act, which is the Inflation Creation Act, really. Yep. Um, and all this money that is being pumped into a new energy system, mm -hmm. which is effectively an unproductive uh, higher energy cost system mm -hmm. for developed economies, that is inflationary. If you look at the history of economic growth, it is all about cheaper forms of energy mm -hmm. fueling our growth, we are going in the opposite direction, which is why, just to go off on a bit of a tangent, which is why we're doing this uh, uh, special series yep. on on net zero insanity, because to me, it is a huge, hugely important issue for anyone interested in long-term wealth creation. And the more that we can talk about that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the more there's a potential opportunity to stop politicians going down this in, insane route, which is creating higher energy costs, creating a massive inflationary problem in that so many resources and productive labor is being taken away from other areas of the economy mm -hmm. to build out uh, what is going to be a high cost energy system. It's just crazy. So Yeah. Well, I think you, uh, you shared a, an article that you described as a pie in the sky article from the Australian Financial Review, I think, yes, uh, yesterday. And I think it was discussing, um, well, this is the first paragraph from, from that article that you, that you shared and was a fully electrified energy efficient home with solar panels, battery and electric cars could save its owners 3,500 a year by 2030 and 4,320 by 2050 compared with the household using gas appliances and petrol vehicles, a new report says. And uh, you, you labeled that um, pie in the sky thinking. And I think that sort of goes, goes ties into what you've been sort of uh, all of the interviews that you've been having about the the net zero and the energy transition. Yeah, I think my frustration with that sort of stuff is that, uh, and you missed the important bit, was that the, the study was modelled on uh, or was based on modelling from uh, CSIRO. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've got a guest uh, hopefully um, going to appear on, mm -hmm. on the, the bonus uh, series who did some investigative investigative work on those uh, CSIRO gen cost estimates and uh, exposed some major, major flaws in them. Uh, and when you read about 
other studies that are based on those major flaws, you just wonder who's actually who's actually thinking, who's who's being a skeptic here. I mean, this is a huge issue for all developed economies going down this decarbonisation path. And there's not really a, a large sceptical movement out there saying, hang on, what are we doing this for? Is this really going to benefit us? Because effectively, uh, the decarbonising nations are just going to uh, outsource their carbon production mm-hmm. to other economies uh, or we're going to destroy our standard of living. Um, and the other pie-in-the-sky thing about that is that I'm not quite sure who writes these reports and maybe what their standard of living mm-hmm. is, but it's all well and good if you live in a, a leafy suburb with a big house and you can put plenty of uh, solar panels on your roof and you can afford mm-hmm. uh you can afford the battery storage and you can afford an electric car mm-hmm. and you can do all those sort of things, then sure, yeah, you're going to save some money, especially if the yeah. state subsidizes your purchase mm-hmm. of all those things. You're going to save lots of money. But I don't know, go and drive around Western Sydney. Go and drive around uh, the concentrated buildup of, uh, of apartments along mm-hmm. corridors of, of Sydney, uh, Parramatta, you know that's just crazy people aren't going to do that and and i think you know you see these headlines in or articles in the mm-hmm. financial review which are pretty much talking to well-heeled people and on the surface those well-heeled people who are living in their well-heeled environments might think okay yeah that makes sense i might go yeah. and do that and save myself that money but to scale that is just insane it's not going mm-hmm. to happen so um yeah i just think it's important to to call out those types of articles and just say, okay, on the surface, yeah, sure, great. Let's all um, electrify and we don't need gas. And uh, it's just, it's not going to happen. Or if it does, it's going to come at a huge cost. Yeah. Yeah. Much more than your 4,000, whatever saving you're going to get from. So you might save your 4,000 bucks on electrifying, but you're going to maybe lose a job or something else along the way. Yeah. There'll be more of a cost is what I'm saying. Yeah, so definitely uh, stay tuned for more bonus episodes from Greg and his interviews. Yes. But I think maybe just bringing it back to, to what you were saying before where uh, a patient investor really has to pay attention to the fun- fundamentals first and have both the the trust in their analysis of the valuation, also the patients to sort of go, I can sort of um, look past the current momentum trading and sort of say, uh, current prices may be justified by momentum, but in the long term, they'll be justified by the fundamentals. And I just have to be patient enough for the for the gravity to sort of take a, take its take effect. Uh, and I think I sort of maybe want to talk about maybe price earning multiples and the 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 valuations that stocks are trading at. I think there was a recent uh, note out from Charles Schwab. I think Liz and Saunders wrote a wrote a note and she said that most of the um the rally newer stocks since october last year are pretty much wholly attributable to uh price earnings multiples expansion so pay, people just basically being more willing willing to pay more for the same amount of earnings and she's basically saying that now is the time with earnings season really ramping up uh that these earnings really have to um match up yeah being justified so now it's really uh confession season uh with that said though i did write an article i think uh well this week that sort of had an interesting um 
interesting fact and you sort of disputed it a little bit and maybe we can get into that but it's basically saying that uh high p stocks are not necessarily expensive just as low p stocks aren't necessarily cheap um, and i think that was, was uh, from terry smith who's who wrote a few books and i think he's a fund manager at uh, fund smith um and in one of his recent books, he sort of uh, had this amazing chart, which sort of showed that the price earnings multiples that you could have paid uh, in 1973. Uh, well, let me just explain. He has a quote and he sort of explains it. So uh, in the period between 1973 to 2019, 2019 when the um, MSCI World Index produced an annual return of 6.2%, uh, you could have uh, paid a multiple of 281 for L'Oreal and still bid in the index. And he sort of showed that you could have still paid a multiple of 240, 230, 174 for other uh, big quality companies and still beaten the index over that long-term period, which just goes to show that some stocks may look expensive, but over the long-term, if their earnings continue to compound, they are cheap over the long-term. That said, you've obviously raised a good point that this probably has a lot of survivorship buyers. There's plenty of high P stocks that have either continued created or just delisted. So really, those for every L'Oreal, there's probably a dozen flops that basically just went nowhere and lost people yeah. money. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's just hindsight analysis, right? And you, you obviously. The, the point you're trying to make is that a high PE stock can still be a, a good stock and deliver outperformance over time is absolutely valid. Uh, I guess the question is, how do you know which high PE stock is the one that's going to be the outperformer? And generally, I'm not sure if anyone is that good an investor that they can pick the yeah. outperformers out ahead of time. Uh, because if you're if you're buying regularly buying high PE stocks, you are going to get some losers. There are going to be mm-hmm. some disappointers. And when the disappointments come for a high PE stock, you, you the share price generally falls yep. considerably. Uh, so, you know, it, it, the point's taken, uh, absolutely. Uh, you can, and I think, you know, when, when we first spoke about some of the NVIDIAs and the Apples and we, and we did the valuations, we showed that if, if a company is generating high returns on equity and reinvesting mm-hmm. and not paying out as a dividend and compounding, those returns year after year, then you can pay a high multiple and do mm-hmm. well from it. Um, but again, it, it can you do that on a consistent basis? Can you uh, foresee the operating environments? Mm-hmm. Can you see the uh, the competition that might come in? And that's where it gets really tricky. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And there's there's some investors that do it really well. Uh, I, I'm just not not a growth sort of uh, person. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really trust myself to to be able to pick. The, the stocks that might outperform. And certainly from an Aussie markets perspective, it's just that much harder. When you're in the US and you mm-hmm. have the US market and also the ability to have an international dominance, uh, you know, they've still got to grow from a small base yeah. to get that, but you've got a, a very big market to start with. Uh, whereas in Australia, you've got a market probably what one-tenth the size of the US. So it's very much more difficult for our companies to get global scale and and really justify those very high multiples. And I guess off the top of my head, CSL is the obvious mm-hmm. one uh, that's that's been a global, uh, dominated globally in its industry. 
um, but going back to your initial point on on price earnings ratios and what they've done, mm-hmm. that to me is really just a it's a sentiment indicator. So mm-hmm. when price earnings ratios are expanding and earnings are flat, mm-hmm. that's just telling you that sentiment is increasing and people are uh, less risk averse and more mm-hmm. willing to pay a higher multiple for a given lot of earnings. Mm-hmm. And when that multiple contracts, that's just the opposite side of the coin. People are saying, I'm not willing to pay 15 times. I only want to pay 10 times now. And the earnings might be stable, but going from 15 to 10 times means a whatever 30 odd percent fall in the, in the stock market for an earnings level of that's stable. So that's really an indication of the effect of sentiment. And then if the market goes from 10 times to 15 times, Mm -hmm. then that's a big, big move as well. So sentiment can have huge uh, impacts on, on the market and really going back to uh, just let me quickly go back to the, uh, the chart of mm-hmm. the ASX 200, you know, it's gone sideways here, but what you mm-hmm. want to try to do, and you can never pick the bottom, but what you want to try to do is get more, uh, I guess, invested when sentiment starts to get a little bit worse. Mm-hmm. So here we've been through a, a time where sentiment, you know, I guess it was pretty bullish up here. Yeah, it was getting bearish down here because of the Silicon Valley Bank mm-hmm. thing. Um, but really, it hasn't hasn't done too much. So to me, you don't really want to get overly invested around these mm-hmm. levels. You want to wait until uh, a lot of bearishness comes into the market because then you know that, a lot of that bad news that might be getting talked about is is priced in at mm-hmm. the moment. And this is why it's a pretty boring market. And, and it's a bit boring for our uh, topic of what's not priced in because there's just not a lot going on. Yeah. You know, we're in the middle of reporting season. Uh, CBA come out with a, a decent result yesterday. The market went up 2%. And I sort of think, you know, I'm not even going to waste my time looking at CBA's result because it's trading on 18 times earnings next year mm-hmm. uh based on my valuation it's it's well overvalued you're not going to outperform by buying cba at 18 times and in fact uh while we're on that topic let's mm-hmm. just have a look at the final this, yeah, I found this, this from, is yeah this yeah. is a great chart i found this from the cba presentation so I, I did have a quick flick through it just to see if anything was interesting there and to be honest, nothing really stood out from an operational mm-hmm. uh, perspective. Uh, but I thought this was interesting, and I don't know why they chose 2014. I think it may have something to do with this was the last maybe cyclical peak in uh, mm-hmm. in bank profitability. So uh, maybe the best way to do this is that um, the return on equity for Australian banks in 2014 was 15%. Mm-hmm. Now, on average, it's 11%. And in 2014, the average return on equity for the ASX 200 was 11%. Now, it's 17%. And this chart up here shows the comparables between 2014 mm-hmm. in Australia versus Canada, US, Europe, and the UK uh, versus currently. So it's interesting that UK, Europe, and the US, these three here, they were mm-hmm. still recovering from uh 
GFC, still recovering from the Eurozone um, Mm -hmm. meltdown in 2012, and their banking sectors had really low return Mm -hmm. on equities, whereas Canada and Australia, which were very similar markets based on housing and and oligopoly, Mm -hmm. were quite high back then. And now if you look uh, forward to where we are now, UK has recovered massively, so I dare say that their banking sector has performed very well in terms of mm-hmm. share price uh, performance over that time. US has improved, um, sorry, Europe has improved and the US has improved uh, as well, whereas Australia and Canada have actually come off in mm-hmm. terms of profitability. So if we look, if we think about Australia going from 15% ROE in 2014 to 11%, mm-hmm. uh, maybe we can have a look at this chart. I know it's a bit messy, but bear with me. So this is all the big four banks yep. plus the ASX 200 since 2014. So Westpac uh, has delivered negative 34%, ANZ negative 22%, mm-hmm. and NAB down about 7%. I should say these are share price performance, so it doesn't mm-hmm. include the Dividends. Uh, impact of dividends. So you're going to get divvies with that as well. But this is a pretty ordinary yeah. share price performance given that you would, you know, the balance sheets of these companies will have expanded over the past mm-hmm. nine years, right? So mm-hmm. they've underperformed massively and that's because their return on equity is a lot lower. Mm-hmm. CBA has probably maintained, well, clearly maintained the best ROE of all the banks, uh, but it's still underperformed the ASX 200. Mm-hmm. And if you remember from that other chart I showed, the ASX 200 went from an average of 11% ROE to mm-hmm. 17%. Um, so my point is you only buying the banks when they're at the peak profitability or in or in relatively good times for profitability isn't going to get you out performance. Mm-hmm. And what I'm always trying to look for is stocks that are going to deliver out performance at some point in the future. And the stocks that you look for are the ones that are not in mm-hmm. any way, shape, or form attractive right now, um, which was the case for the banks post-COVID. Uh, um, yeah. I think the only time I've recommended banks was around about here. Uh, was it? I think it was late. Might have been September 2021, mm-hmm. something like yeah. that, uh, and didn't hang around in them for very long, to be honest. Um, stayed in them for probably less than a year uh, to get that to get that uptick and then when they were fully priced um it was time to time to move back out might have moved out a little bit too early in some cases but um you don't you don't get out performance from looking at the intricate details of cba's result when cba is performing very very well it's mm-hmm. it's a very over over owned stock over analyzed um and you know that's it's an important stock for Australia, the, yeah, for Australia, and to look at the economy and all that sort of stuff, but it's not going to not going to give you out performance in your super fund or in your personal portfolio or whatever. Um, I shouldn't say definitively, but um, the probability yeah. of getting out performance is probably quite low. Whereas if we want to look at where you are going to get out performance or where there's a greater probability yep. of getting out performance, I thought we should um, instead of just being negative about stuff. I thought it'd be good to show a couple of stocks that are looking pretty good from a valuation perspective. So this is the mining service. I've picked out a few mining services stocks. Um, Mm -hmm. So first one here, which has done pretty well from the lows of say 
March. This is mm-hmm. uh, NRW Holdings. Um, I just jotted down some numbers. So it's on a using FY24 estimates. It's on a PE of 10.5 times, uh, dividend yield of 5.75%, uh, price to book 1.8 times, mm-hmm. and it's got a return on equity of nearly 17%. And it's got a payout ratio of 60%. I should point out, I haven't actually done valuation of of these but just looking at those numbers it looks reasonable to me so mm-hmm. you know viewers might want to go off and do their own own stuff on it um and that chart's looking quite good as well it's starting to get into a uh, into an uptrend uh the other stock is mcmahon holdings this is a little mm-hmm. bit smaller so the chart looks a little bit a little oh. bit weird because it trades it's probably got a lot less liquidity than some of the mm-hmm. larger stocks but mcmahon's on 4.4 times forward earnings 5.5% divi yield uh, trades at half of book value um, and it's got an ROE of 11.9 times so uh, again profitability is pretty good at nearly 12% ROE um, and it trades at half of its book value now the thing is with mining services stocks they are capital intensive so the market tends to mark these down they're never really probably going to trade at market multiples but as I said, you got NRW at 10.5, um, McMahon at 4.4, and EHL, which is a stock that I know pretty well because it's in uh, my portfolio uh, or in the um, uh, client's portfolio mm-hmm. that uh, for my newsletter. It's on a forward PE of 4.7 times. It's got 6.75% uh, forecast dividend yield, mm-hmm. trades at a price to book value of 0.56 times and a return on equity of 12%. Uh, so if you like the commodity sector and we showed the uptick in commodity prices mm-hmm. early on, I don't think commodity prices are going into any type of long-term bear market. I think there's considerable supply constraints across the whole commodities complex. Um, mm-hmm. You know, These type of companies are going to do well longer term. Uh, have a look at their balance sheets, make sure the debt's not too much of an issue. EHL does have uh, a little bit of debt. They've, the last couple of years, they've got that debt down a lot, but they are generating uh, enough cash flow that they can mm-hmm. manage that. And I think, you know, the share price, once it moves away from this consolidation period, I think um, that's a buy. I don't actually have it as a buy at the moment, but I'm looking at it quite closely. Mm-hmm. Uh, and finally, this is another, this is probably the largest one. It's also got some lithium exposure, is mineral resources. Mm-hmm. It's on a PE of 13 times. Uh, it reinvests most of its profits. So it's only got a divvy yield of 1.72%. Trades at 3.3 times book value. And uh, it's got a healthy return on equity of 23.1%. So this has been trending down mm-hmm. for most of the year. Uh, but I think you could look for a, seems to be trying to find a bottom here certainly there's solid support around this level uh and i think once it sort of did base a little bit and start to move up uh that would get me uh interested but yeah i just thought it'd be worth pointing out uh, a couple of stocks Kirill, that you know are off investors radars mm-hmm. they're looking reasonably good value the charts are looking interesting um so yeah be just ones to probably put on the put on the watch list and see how they they uh, things unfold in the in the months ahead. Yeah, well, if it's uh, if there's structural headwinds for or tailwinds, if uh, commodity prices are going to be quite strong in the long term, it's it's a good uh, place to be in to be selling shovels in a gold rush. And I think that's Absolutely. what mining services are. 
Well, I think we've uh, we've talked for quite a bit. So maybe did you have any uh, takeaways or your biggest what's not priced in idea for listeners this week? I think you, no, I think you mentioned think, commodities. Yeah, look, I think com- commodities are starting to move again. So I think that's that's an interesting part of the market. They've had a had a pretty rough six months, uh, but just in general, there's no real standout. And I think that's where it comes back to your quote. Mm-hmm. From the start of the show, which I'm glad you uh, glad you raised, uh, you know, un, unannounced. We didn't talk about this prior to, but if things aren't, if if it's not there for you to invest in, you just you can sit back mm-hmm. and wait. You don't have to invest in stuff. Um, you you can afford to to see how this plays out. And as we spoke about last week, I think the market is uh, pricing in a, a, a better outcome mm-hmm. than what probability suggests is going to is going to unfold in the months ahead. Uh, this reporting season has not thrown up too many nasty surprises so far, yep. so that's probably at least a positive. Um, but the market multiples are reasonably demanding. So I think mm-hmm. the companies that are delivering, they're not really seeing a big re-rate yep. in their share price. Um, so I think a lot of that reasonable i wouldn't say overly good news but i think a lot of the reasonable news is already priced in the market isn't low enough to get those upside mm-hmm. surprises going from good good results uh, so for me um what's not priced in is uh i guess everything and nothing it's, it's very difficult to pull something out of the market at the moment and say yeah. here's where the best opportunities are i just showed the mining services stocks mm-hmm. i think there's little pockets like that where you can say well there's certain areas that have just been completely overlooked. Mm-hmm. And I think you do have to go to the smaller end of the market to find that. And maybe let me just finish by showing two quick charts that will probably make this uh, quite clear. So um, we showed this chart, sorry, this one here. This is the real uh, real interest, uh, real interest rate, and the the market has uh, divorced from that since yep. the lows of uh, last year. Uh, when I say real interest rate, this is the the tips index, which is a proxy for the price of real um, price of real rates. There's a big gap between the ASX 200. Mm-hmm and where real rates are. But there's a lot smaller gap when you look at the small ordinaries and the small odds have really underperformed mm-hmm. the larger cap stocks. So potentially there's a lot more value and there's a lot more interesting stuff happening happening at the smaller end of the market, which has been overlooked. And this tells me that a lot of capital has concentrated into the larger end of the market, given the uncertainties uh, around future economic growth and inflation and, and all those things that uh, you know are unknown. So um, what's not priced in maybe a better than expected outlook for the uh, for the small cap small cap stocks. Yeah and I think uh, just in live wire markets, I think one of their most uh, popular stories I think this week was titled why small caps can and will outperform again. So I think there's maybe a tension starting to, to build for that for well, that hang on, sector. then that's getting too popular oh, then isn't yeah. it so maybe that's not gonna work now <laughs> yeah it's in the news oh, well we'll see we'll see exactly it's that's investing is hard <laughs> investing is it hard. is it is yeah so maybe to tie it all in i think um i think you're sort of saying that this week has been a bit dull and i think that's sometimes 
in this attention economy, investors may get too caught up in in content and have feeling like they need to always do something or always making trades. But I think the best investors are the disciplined investors and investors that have a time frame beyond the one year and beyond the one week. So maybe there is some momentum that's pushing stocks up and maybe you're feeling a bit FOMO, but always focus on the fundamentals. And if it gets boring, that that doesn't necessarily matter. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You just have to Wait it out, go read a book, go watch a TV show and come back when the market is Took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say, <laughs> turn the screen off, go read a book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's I think we can maybe end on that. If it gets markets boring, read a book. Exactly. Nice yeah. one. Any reading recommendations? <laughs> uh, I've got plenty. Um, actually, I'm reading at the moment. For anyone, for anyone uh, interested in their history... Uh, Adam Zamoyski is a really good history writer and I've uh, last year on holidays for some strange reason I picked up a book on Napoleon um, which I hadn't read about for 20 odd years Mm -hmm. and I was really interested in it then he'd written another one about uh, the Congress of Vienna which was the peace settlement after Mm -hmm. the Napoleonic Wars which I found really fascinating and then I saw this one called Phantom Terror The Threat of Revolution and the Repression of Liberty from 1789 to 1848, which um, I can tell, you know, some people are probably not into it all, but mm-hmm. I'm into my history and uh, it's another really cracking read. But anyway, Adam Zamoyski has written loads of history books and he's a really engaging uh, history writer. So if anyone is, in, is into history, I would suggest checking out his stuff. There you go. Now it's a, now it's a reading book club as well. <laughs> but with that said, we'll, um, nice episode and we'll see you next week. Cheers, girl. See you, everyone. See ya. Bye. Thanks for joining What's Not Priced In, your weekly source of unique ideas in the Australian stock market. If you've enjoyed this episode, please show your support by following us on your chosen platform and turn those post notifications on so you don't miss a thing. And uh, stay tuned for the upcoming episodes as we delve into new topics, new trends, and new stocks. Thanks for your support. Hope to see you next week.